as I uh, mentioned uh, last couple weeks, this section of Acts is probably the most amazing event that's ever been in church history. Uh, the Apostle Peter had just with great precision expounded two major Old Testament passages in Joel and then Psalm 16. And then he connected them to Jesus Christ and giving of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Uh, the thing about all of this is there were no worship teams playing. Uh, there was no choir singing. There was no silly entertainment that was going on. There was just pure preaching of the Word of God, the doctrinal truth from the Word of God. But that preaching had the power of the Holy Spirit behind it, and the results of that were absolutely dynamic. But nowadays, there are so many public speakers who spend years studying methodology and trying to manipulate an audience. And in most public speaking courses, even in seminaries, um, that point is stressed as one of the main focal points of an effective ministry. Uh, there, these uh, prospective pastors are told they need to learn how you can work the audience uh, how you can tailor your, your message or your speech uh, so that uh, you can touch the hearts of these people. And so it's not uncommon in a church service to hear a pastor um, who asks people to bow their heads, to, to have the music play softly, as he tries to manipulate them into raising their hand or walking the aisle. I remember being in a church once where the pastor did exactly that. And I was straight back. And he, he says, okay, now with your, your heads bowed and your eyes closed, um, please raise your hand if you would like to uh, accept Jesus. Well, I was looking right straight at him. And he, he looked right at me and he said, with your eyes closed and your heads bowed, and I refused to do that. But I was looking around. The guy says, I see that hand. I see that hand. There were no hands going up at all. He was trying to manipulate the crowd. He was trying to go, well, if they did, I will. I don't want to be, sound like I'm, I'm unspiritual. So that was what was happening. But see, the thing is, the apostle Peter did not do that at all. He just simply stood up, set forth the truth of the word of God. And when he was done, he didn't ask them to raise their hands or come forward. He didn't ask them to bow their heads. He didn't try to generate a response. He set forth clear theological truth from the Word of God. And when he was done, over 3,000 people were moved by the Holy Spirit to respond. Through the power of the Spirit of God, it was the preaching of the Word of God that caused many people to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that led them to having totally transformed lives. We must understand that all the responses of the people that you will see in this section were due to Peter expounding God's Word. Not trying to manipulate them, but God's Spirit empowered Peter when he preached, and their 
responses were absolutely amazing. And afterwards, many of them were cut to the heart. They realized that they needed to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to keep in mind that Peter had just given a very serious doctrinal exposition of the truth of the Holy Spirit and of Jesus Christ. And he ended his sermon by telling his audience something that you would never hear. He said, and you are responsible for killing Jesus Christ. That seems to be absolutely polar opposite of any of the techniques used in pulpits today. Most pulpits won't mention sin. They won't mention hell. And they won't mention your responsibility. They don't mention the wrath of God. They will never mention that people are responsible for anything. All they'll sit there and say is, wouldn't you just like to have a good, happy life? Wouldn't you like to have more friends? Just like smiling Joel. The true gospel of Jesus Christ is all that needs to be put before sinners. It's the good news that we hear that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. And he did that to save us from our sins. If you would please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Starting with verse 1. It says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and which you stand, by which you were also, uh, also you were saved, if you hold fast to that word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For I deliver to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's what was preached. And you see, the Gospel of Christ is the only soul-saving message that there is. Romans 1.16, the Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for, first, uh, for the Jew first and also the Greek. He didn't sit there and say, Well, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because, you know what? I have a good message for you. I have a way that I can manipulate you that that's going to be of no effect. I can get you to fill this church. I can get you to do whatever, whatever I want. He didn't say that. He said we must preach the gospel. We must believe it, defend it, share it, and remember it. And then we must come to the understanding that God has given us ordinances to follow in, in uh, uh, obedience to Him. He's given us the ordinance of communion, the Lord's Supper, and of baptism. 
Why did he do that? He gave those as object lessons so that we can always remember the gospel. It's true that a picture is worth a thousand words. And you see, baptism pictures a believer being united in Christ in his death, burial, burial and resurrection. There are many different interpretations of the way that church, churches baptize. Some say that baptism is optional. It may be for some, but it's not for everybody. Some say that baptism has to happen in order to be saved. Some say that infants should be baptized. Some say baptism is done by sprinkling and pouring. Whatever, whatever you think, that's what, whatever's best for you. But you see, I think that Satan is behind all this confusion. What could do greater damage than confuse the gospel message and to have Christians de uh, disagree on such important teaching? The gospel message has all been lost in churches today. There's even a lot of confusion among some professing faith in Christ in regards to Christ's lordship. Should Christ be lord over my life? There are some who profess belief and say that it's possible to have Jesus as Savior and enjoy God's forgiveness through faith in Christ and yet not submit to Him as Lord. Submitting to his sovereign rule over their lives. That's a dangerous error. And it implies that we can divide the offices of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And choose and pick and choose which offices we want Christ to exercise in our lives. And which offices we don't want. Because you're going to hamper my life God, you don't know my situation. You don't know how tough it's going to be. So much of the time, those who fall into this web want the forgiveness of Christ as priest, but not the lordship of Christ as king. Folks, that's not possible. This leads to those who live their lives disobediently and then they justify doing so because, well, you know what? I'm just that carnal Christian. I don't have to submit to the lordship of Christ and the kingship of Christ over every area of my life. I want you to know this and I want you to understand this. A divided Savior is no Savior at all. He is either Lord and Savior or is neither. Pastor Greg Price says this about their confusion over Jesus' lordship. He says, Jesus reveals himself in Scripture as prophet, the one who reveals to us the will of God for our salvation and sanctification. He reveals himself as priest who deem, uh, redeems us from guilt, condemnation, and the power of sin and prays for us without ceasing. He reveals himself also as king who is Lord of all and who rules all things to the glory of God and to the benefit of his church. We can no more 
deny any of the offices of Christ as our mediator, prophet, priest, or king, then we can deny either of the natures of Christ as our mediator, divine and human, our mediator who saves us from our sin is fully God and fully man and is prophet, priest, and king, end quote. I pray that by the end of this message, if you don't already believe it, that you yourselves will not make that mistake, thinking that Jesus can be your Savior without your Lord. Jesus is Lord of all. That was the confession of Peter in Acts chapter 10, verse 36. And we'll see today that there is no limitation to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, whether as to the universal extent over which he reigns over all creation or the temporal extent which he reigns now and forevermore. And upon this truth, Peter concludes his sermon to the Jewish men gathered that day on the day of Pentecost. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So if you would, please turn to our text for this morning. It's found in Acts chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 34 through 39. Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. You see, Peter comes to his final point of his sermon, and there he boldly declares, that he has been humbled by the grace of God. He has been empowered by the Spirit of God. And he has been uh, uh, given this power by the resurrection of Christ. Whereas before, Peter denied Christ. It seems that the kingdom of God was much about him who would be the greatest on that day and that he would never fail, even if all the other apostles and all the other disciples failed, he would not. Now here, he preaches to these Jewish men and it's very clear that he has come to an understanding by God's grace that that kingdom that Jesus Christ talked about was not about him. It was about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's about the glory of God. 
about the amazing life and miracles of Jesus Christ. Then, he, he ends up realizing that the resur bodily resurrection, which proved that Jesus was the Messiah, and the guilt and condemnation of sin was satisfied forever for God's people. Jesus' royal coronation came at God's right hand of power. The thing we find out about this is that being a Christian isn't about you and I. It's not about our wants or desires. It's all about Jesus Christ. His kingdom, his gospel, his lordship, his will, trusting him, loving him, obeying him, and pleasing him. We like to think it's all about us. We, folks, I hope you understand, in all of that, we reap the benefit. But it's an overflow. We reap the benefit of all of that. But it's not about you. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 1.21. He said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ. My life reflects the Christ, the Lord, the one who created me, the one who redeemed me. It's all about him. And at one time, I will die and I will be in his presence now and forevermore. If you look back, let's just look back at verse 33 of our text. You, you can see the word therefore. That word therefore in the Greek is the word un. And it means for this cause or accordingly or consequently, these things are actually so. It's basically saying in verse 33 that God was not going to let Jesus' body see the corruption of death and decay. And for this cause, he would raise him out of the realm of the dead or out of Hades, and then he would exalt him to his own right hand. The famous preacher John Gill says this, this is an honor that, that never was conferred to any other, any not other, any creature, angel, or men. Besides, he was exalted and raised to the high honor and dignity of a prince and savior of, of Lord, head, and king. So as to have a name, dominion, and authority over all by the mighty power of God, which is sometimes called his right hand, end quote. Christ was given all that. And I, I made the mistake of actually saying any other. Christ isn't another creature. Christ has always been, always will be, but he became something that he never was. He was always God. 
he became man as well. Truly God, truly man. And so if you look at verse 34 of our text, we see a continuation of that thought where it says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. Now Peter makes an obvious statement about David in that his body was still in the grave. It's still in the tomb. And it remains to this day. Even though his soul had ascended into heaven and he returned to God, the God who gave him his body, his body was in the grave. And so Peter pulls together all the threads and concludes his argument with a quote from Psalm 110. And we read Psalm 110 as our call to worship this morning. And so it's no surprise that Peter would use this psalm. He had, after all, the benefit of having listened to Jesus preach on this very same psalm. If you would please turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22 and verses 41 through 46. Remember, this isn't the first time that this came up and that connection was made by Christ himself. Matthew chapter 22, starting with verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, Where do you... What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. You see here, Jesus is making a point, right? The Jews were expecting uh, that coming king, the Messiah, would be the son of David. And they were right. Ish. He would be the son of David. But he would have to be more than that. Because Psalm 110, David doesn't call him son. David calls him Lord. He says, my Lord, the Messiah, my Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have to understand, first of all, Jesus Christ is a great high priest. He is the great high priest and no other Old Testament priest ever sat in the presence of God. You can go from the first priest in the Old Testament and go through throughout the tabernacle temple and all the sacrifices, ceremonies, holy days, whatever you want, and you will never find a priest in the Old Testament, any typical priest ever sitting down anywhere around the tabernacle or the temple. As a matter of fact, there were no seats in the tabernacle. There were no seats in the temple. The reason the old temple, temple priests never sat down is because their work was never done. They never really accomplished their work. Their sacrifices were never effectual. 
Meaning they, they themselves were just a picture of the atonement, but they weren't themselves having any actual atoning value. Those were this. And, and this, all illustrations fall short. But think of it this way. If you were to say, I, I got an envelope, it's, you know, had the ability to win things, and you open the envelope, you pull out the picture of what your prize is, and you see this car. And you take out that picture and you go, wow, I want a car. Well, you have to turn that picture in in order to redeem the car. That picture may be an exact rep representation of the, of the car, but you can't hop on that picture and go over to you know, your friend's house or travel anywhere with the picture. The picture represented the car itself. You have to get the car in order for, for that, uh, you to go anywhere in that car. The same thing if you had a lottery ticket, that number. You have to turn that stub with that exact number in. That's what those sacrifices pointed to, that perfect sacrifice of Christ. And that meant, at that point, you would have what those sacrifices represented. And so the priests, they offered these sacrifices, sacrifice after sacrifice, because their work was never done. The Lord of heaven and earth said to my Lord, my great high priest, my redeemer, my mediator, the one who represents me to God, he's the one that will sit at my right hand. Do you know why he sat down? The reason is because this man had offered one sacrifice for sin forever. For by the offering, he perfected forever them that are sanctified. He sat down at the right hand of God because his work was finished. Our, re our redemption is not open-ended. There is nothing else to be done for our redemption. He cried so that it could be heard in heaven and earth and hell. It is finished. I finished the work that you gave me. Therefore the Father said, sit down. Well done. He sits as our mediator. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. You ever think about why the right hand? Because that's where the that's the right hand is reserved for the beloved. You ever notice when you're at a wedding, the groom is over here. The bride walks up and he's and she's to the left. The, the groom is to the right. And so they get pronounced husband and wife. What happens? They turn. Now she is on the right, the beloved. Folks, that right side is reserved 
for the beloved. Reserved for the beloved of God. That's where the special one sits. That's where Christ sits. And Paul says we are accepted in the beloved and we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. He sits down because the work of redemption is complete. His people are now secure. No one can pluck them out of his hand and no one can pluck them out of the Father's hand. So he sits down. Verse 35, David says something that only God could say, till I make your enemies your footstool. So how long is he going to be sitting there? How long is our forerunner going to be there? How long is this mediator going to be seated at the right hand? It's until I make your, all your enemies your footstool. Until every enemy is vanquished or conquered. The last enemy must be destroyed. Sit there until all of your children are brought home. The right hand is an idiom. It's an anthropomorphism as God, God's working in history. And so God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead, but he also exalted him to the highest position above all heavens, above the earth. Jesus holds the highest ground. That's actually a military me metaphor. And that's occasionally used in the Bible to show his military superiority by position and rank. Hebrews chapter 7 talks about this. If you tur please turn to Hebrews chapter 7 and verses 26 and 7. You can just imagine the Hebrew. Uh, Hebrews is written to the Jewish Christians who were being persecuted and they thought, hey, 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 let's, let, let's drop this uh, uh, and go back to Judaism until all of this persecution is over and then maybe we'll become Christians again. But the author says, why would you want to go back to the rit ritual that has the, when the real deal, when the, you got more than the picture of the car, you got the car. You got what is, is you need for salvation. That tradition, that car, that, uh, or, or that, that picture of salvation it does, it's no good anymore. You need to move on. So here's what the writer of Hebrews says. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices for first his own sins and then for the people's. For this he died once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priest men who have weakness. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. In other words, Christ's sacrifice is far superior than the Levitic Levitical sacrifices so magnificent 
that he only had to die once for all, for all the sin, past, present, and future of those who are his. It's retroactive, but it's also proactive. So his exaltation is connected to his crucifixion. And we want to see more of this, I'm sure, because this, we need to, we need to get this, this right in our heads. And, and so what I'd like to do is have you turn to Philippians chapter 2 because this is the great kenosis passage. You see, Paul didn't give this hard doctrine just to memorize and take up space in your cranium. He considered this doctrinal high practice in terms of building the proper attitude. And that's what we see in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Here, the Apostle Paul tells the Philippians, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Tell me he can be your Savior without being Lord. Here we read in verse 7, but he made himself. The NASB says, but he emptied himself. But see, that right there is kenosis. The emptying. But you'll see it's defined more by him taking on something, not taking away and we see this at the end of verse 7 there in Philippians uh, chapter 2. Beginning with verse 8, it says that he's taken on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as man. Right there we have three uh, participle phrases that define the kenosis they all boil down to the fact that he took on him, to himself true humanity. He was the creator from all eternity. And at that point in time, the creator took upon himself the creature. So now he's the creator-creature distinction. And it still remains intact. At the end of verse 8 and then in verse 9, it says he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. What's that name? Peter says in his sermon, Jesus is Lord. At that, uh, that at the name of Jesus, every name shall be uh, should bow 
of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is where history is headed. To Jesus Christ. To the glory of God the Father. So having been exalted above his enemies, now he's located on the throne in the throne room. He's looking down on his enemies. He's got high position of privilege. And that's the idea of the exaltation that Peter wants everyone to see. He wants to take them into the throne room of God so they can see Christ on the throne, seated at the right hand. Because this is practical doctrine. It's not just theoretical. Jesus will sit at the right hand of God until both the enemies of heaven and earth are vanquished. But he doesn't end his sermon there. Remember, he concludes with this terrifying indictment. In verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Folks, the thing that's missing from most gospel messages today is that there's no understanding of what the good news is because there's no understanding of what the bad news is. Before they could understand the good news, they needed to be confronted with the bad news. The bad news is the king is on his throne, but you have proven yourselves to be rebels and enemies of God. And that signaled the conclusion of the argument. And now starts... This verse starts with therefore, or consequently, or these things being so, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, without a doubt, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, that known assuredly is the Greek word asphalos, and it's emphatic in the Greek. This means no beyond a shadow of a doubt. This is unmistakable knowledge that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. I'll tell you what, that's a tremendous thing to say. Uh, Our culture can barely stand that. Our culture goes, uh, yeah, okay, I'm not buying that. Because our culture is full of a lot of people who don't agree with, with this at all. They don't agree that Jesus is Lord and Savior. That He is everything that He said. Most people won't buy that. They want a Christianity where they're Lord, where they are the the one to be exalted. That everything is for them. That God and Christ are just the cosmic genies that make everything work out for them. That's just how much of the outside world has come into the church. That's how much Some of these people have such ignorance 
and arrogance with their lack of knowledge. So the question becomes, can you really know something for sure about spiritual things? There's a lot of people who really struggle with trusting the Word of God. And that gets back to some kind of relative, relativism in your soul. That's what presents, prevents you from trusting. You're not convinced because you got this idea as well. You think, well, you know, we'll believe it if there was a, uh, a scientific uh, research done. We'll, we'll, we'll believe it if we can see these things. Didn't they always say, show us one more sign, one more miracle, then we'll believe? That's what most people in most churches think. But when it comes to religion... I hope you understand. It's true. Because God says it's true. And because God says it's true, I can, I can know for certain. Peter claims that they can know for sure that God has recognized Jesus as Lord and Master because he sits on the right hand of God as Messiah and Christ. And this statement is powerful. As Peter refers to Jesus not only as Christ and Messiah, but also Lord. We have to understand, in the Old Testament, the most sacred name of God was Yahweh. This name was so sacred that no one was allowed to pronounce it without being condemned as a blasphemer except for the high priest, and that was only on Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement. And, and he had to be in the temple. Therefore, since the name of, uh, was not to be pronounced, the Jewish leaders tip, typically substitute Adonai or Lord or, uh, for Yahweh. And so the Christian in the Christian text of the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, Yahweh is actually the word Kyrios, or Lord. So to refer to Christ as Lord is to refer to him as God. Bible scholar F.F. F. Bruce says this, the first apostolic sermon concludes with the first apostolic creed, Jesus is Lord. Lord, not only as bearer of courtesy title, but as bearer of the name which is above every name. Early Christians meant to give Jesus the title Lord in this highest sense, indicating that they didn't have hesitancy to apply these Old Testament passages to him as Yahweh. And so verse 36 points back to Joel 2.32. And we see that in our, in our text if you look back at verse 21. It says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, what Peter 
has done is he's saying that Christ is the Lord mentioned in Joel 2.32. Everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. It's the kingship of Jesus in his resurrection that makes his priestly sacrifice for our sins efficacious, effectual. Therefore, without the Lord, Lordship of Jesus Christ as King, there's no hope. No one would be saved. He must subdue us to himself because we are all enemies. Before he gives us a new heart in order to trust him and to love him and to obey him, without the lordship of Jesus Christ as king, none of us would continue, uh, continue to be saved because we would all fall away if all he had the power is to at one point save us and then nothing else, we would all fall right back away from him. But he has the power to maintain that because he is eternal. Jesus Christ is Lord over all and he does it for the benefit and profit of his own dear children. And he demands that we know this. He demands that we repent and believe. But then he also commands that you, you be baptized. You know, we, we, we shouldn't be pretending if you're a Christian that we can relax and be confident that what we say is true, that, well, the, the pastor said it, so it must be true. I don't want to pressure anyone into a false belief. There are many people that will. There's many people that will sit there and tell you whatever you want just to get you to say, yeah, um, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior, but yet they do not have a converted heart. I can't do that. I don't want to do that. None of you should do that. You preach the gospel. Because the ultimate end of Christ's lordship and kingship is the, Lord, is the glory of God. And then to a subordinate end of Christ's lordship and kingship, is that all men who come to Christ can be saved. Jesus has been given all power in heaven and earth to exercise all power in heaven to sanctify, to save you, sanctify you, preserve you, and then usher you into his kingdom. Peter wants you to know for certain, unmistakably so, 
that this is true. And he goes to all Scripture to show this. New Testament, Old Testament. He wants you to see that it is Jesus who is appointed divine and yet human mediator. And that God has submitted all rule over all things to him for the benefit of his church. If you would please turn to Ephesians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul tells those at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. Therefore, I also, after I heard of, of your faith in the Lord Jesus and of your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the age to come, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see, the kingdom of Christ isn't a political kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. And it has its design to save God's elect to subdue and judge God's enemies. The origin of Christ's kingdom and rule is not from this world. It's from the heavenly. Its end is not a worldly end. Its end is the salvation of all God's chosen. Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords and the Prince of the kings of the earth, uses and governs all creation as a means to glorify God and to save you, his people, to sanctify you, to preserve you, and to usher you in to his everlasting kingdom. Everything that God has created and everything that exists is used by King Jesus for the glory of God and the benefit of God's elect even our sin. It's used to humble us. It's used to turn us to Him, to trust Him, to submit to Him. We all bear those scars. 
And that's for the reason for us to turn to glorify Him. The rule and dominion of Christ as Messianic Lord and King is universal. Literally all creation. Hebrews 2, 7, 7 and 8 says of His authority, You have crowned Him with glory and honor and set Him over the works of your hands. You put all things in subjection under His feet. We keep hearing that under His feet, don't we? Until He makes His enemies a footstool. And so, here Peter is. He preaches this message telling them that they are responsible for killing the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You know what he does? He waits for a response. And it doesn't take long. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Do you see that phrase when they heard this? Peter didn't tell them something, something that would be nicely put so that they weren't offended. He quoted the word of God. Romans 10, 16 and 17 says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We don't need crafty speech in order to convert the souls of men. You only get people who follow false religion, a false Christ. I want you to notice that when they were speaking in tongues, there was no reaction like this. People were either mesmerized or they mocked them. But when the gospel is preached, they were cut to the heart. The work of salvation comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why the, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And these people are going, my God, Goodness, do you understand what we did? We crucified the Christ. Now what? Really, this is the result of all of us, right? All of us, when we come to Christ, we all realize we've sinned. We realize that we separated ourselves from God. And we want to be right. So what do we do? The very person that we rejected and treated wickedly is now exalted at the right hand of God. So they cry out, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do to be saved? What shall we do to be, be delivered from this guilt of our sin? We've sinned against God. We need salvation. 
We're the very ones that despised the one who is now exalted. You know what Peter says? I'll tell you what you need to do. Verse 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Simply put, it means you have to have a change of mind that's demonstrated through a change of direction. They needed to forget what they were taught about the Messiah and start believing who he is based on Scripture itself. You once thought Jesus was a heretic and a blasphemer worthy of death. You need to change your mind about about all of that and believe on him as the only begotten Son of God who bore the sins of the world for the sake of our forgiveness. No longer are you to reject him. You're to receive him as he is. Simply put, repentance isn't what you do before you come to God. Repentance describes what God is doing as you come. You can't turn to God without turning away from sin. So really, the word repent is a word of hope. Things don't have to be like they are. Turn to God. Repent. And believe me, as I say at this point, things will change. I was just talking to someone. I said, you know what? When you, your eyes are open to the truth, you can't help it. Because you are new, made a new creation in Christ. What you were yesterday, you're not now. And you continue to grow. And then what Peter says, once you repented for the remission of your sins, you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Now, the idea of baptism is that it pictures our union and identification with Christ. We see this in Romans 6, 1 through 3, where the Apostle Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many as us of us that were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? You see, baptism identifies us. It's just like a uniform that identifies a person. You see person in, un, in military uniform or firefighter or, or, or policeman. It pictures the beginning of our new life in Christ. And in verse 4 of Romans 6, it says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we, are, we also should walk in newness of life. Meaning that our old life is gone and buried. And we have been raised to walk in newness of life. And it pictures the certainty of our, our future resurrection in Romans 6, 5, 5 and 6. 
For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Know that, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Do you understand that picture of baptism? As we sit there and we, we have the person in the water and we are saying, making a public profession of I, was, I died to self and I was risen with Christ. That's going from the grave and being risen out of it. The meaning of baptism is related to the method. Baptism is a picture of death, resurrection. That can only be done through immersion. This is not that baptism is required for salvation. You have to understand that. I mean, the Bible absolutely refutes that. The thief on the cross, beside Jesus, was not baptized. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't look at him. You know, the, the thief goes, hey, I want salvation. I know that you're the Christ. And Jesus didn't say, well, you know, I know you had a chance to be baptized, so... You know, I guess you're not going to be saved because you, you didn't get the dunk. That's not, that's not the case. Careful study of Scripture shows what it is. If you please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 starting with verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the house of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be of no effect. And so we can see that baptism is not for infants, but only those who believe in Christ. The Bible t doesn't teach that we should baptize infants. We need to baptize those who believe the Bible does refer to salvation of households, but we need to understand that that means every member of the family that came to repentance and faith were baptized. We see this with Lydia's family in Acts 16, 14, and 15. We see it with the Philippian jailer and his family in Acts 16, 30, uh, 33, or 30-33. But we see what happens is that baptism is an act of obedience after salvation. And where we see in verse 38 of our text, for the remission or the forgiveness of sins, in the Greek, it means because of the forgiveness of sins. Here's what John MacArthur says about this. He says, this is where people get confused because they say repent and be baptized for the remissions of sin in order that your sins might be forgiven, which means that baptism comes before forgiveness. You've got to be baptized in order to be forgiven. 
But that's not true because that contradicts the Bible, which says you're not saved by works at all. It does not need to be that way. Listen to this. In studying the word for the remissions of sin, which is often translated by ritualists, in order that we find the word uh, ice. Ice takes many different translations. One of those translations used with verbs of change is the translation because of. It is thus to be translated in Matthew 12, 41, where it says that the people repented because of the preaching of Noah. They repented in response to preaching. MacArthur continues, here we simply give it that meaning, and that meaning it can, uh, can well have and read this way. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus because of the forgiveness of sins. In other words, you repent, then you are baptized because your sins have been forgiven. It is a public sign of what has gone on the inside, end quote. And so picture it this way. Baptism is like a wedding ring. It shows that you have a special relationship with Jesus. We don't confuse the symbol with the relationship. You know, when you walk down the aisle and you are standing there and you state your vows and the wedding is all over, you don't walk away from it with just a ring. You end up with either a husband or wife, whether you're male or female. And so repentance brought the remission of sin, and baptism is a visual term of a sign or symbol. Repentance, and then to show that forgiveness has been accomplished, then you're baptized. The Spirit of God doesn't come as a result of water baptism, but of repentance. Every believer receives the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. 1 Corinthians 12 says we were all baptized in the Spirit, same body, that's salvation. But water baptism is public. Willing to stand up and be baptized in public can be very costly because it's an outward expression of inward possession of faith. There are many of us, me for one, my family was horrified when I made that profession. My mom, my dad, my brothers and sisters, they thought that I had gone off the deep end, that I was denying what I was brought up in, and I was making a profession of faith because like those people back then, I received the Word of God. So when a person is baptized, what they're doing is they're saying, I'm a sinner who sins. I am guilty. But the Holy Spirit has enabled me to see that Jesus Christ has died as my substitute 
that he has cleansed me from my sin. He has risen from the dead and he promises to deliver me from the grave and I believe in him. So I'm dying with him in his death and I'm taking up my cross. I'm following him wherever he leads, no matter the cost. Come persecution or abandonment. Come suffering or death. Jesus is Lord. And finally, in verse 39 of our text, it says, For the promise is to you and your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. This promise referred to here is the promised spirit. This is another way of saying the new covenant is for the Jews, your children, you and your children, Also the Gentiles, that's who are afar off, and those within the Jew and Gentiles who are being called by God. Every person, whether Jew or Gentile, uh, providing that they repent and believe on Christ, will receive all the blessings of the new covenant. These and only these should be baptized as a public testimony of their union with Christ. And so therefore, I believe that Peter is giving them needed encouragement. Yes, as a nation, they crucified the Lord Jesus. But they have not sinned beyond what salvation can do. As long as they repent and believe on on Christ they cannot outsin the grace of God. We find that same basic principle in Romans eleven twenty three, where it says, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again, which is talking about the Jews. So Paul encourages his readers with this gracious promise of salvation. It's offered to them. It's offered to their children as long as they repent and believe the gospel. And furthermore, this very same gospel is intended for those who are afar off, the Gentiles. No sinner will ever be saved without the conviction of the Holy Spirit the work of the Holy Spirit to pierce the heart of sinful man. No one will have true salvation until they're convinced of their need of salvation. This conviction comes through a knowledge of the law. Romans 3.20 says, For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So basically and theologically, it entails two sides, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. No sinner will ever be saved without calling. And that's what verse 39 says, as many as the Lord our God will call. In other words, he effectually calls his children to himself, his sheep. So simply put, both conviction and conversion are results of the Spirit's calling through the gospel. Christ calls sinners to himself through his word. 
Folks, that's what He's doing even this morning. If you don't believe, if you don't know, do you hear that call? You need to be obedient to it. If He is calling you to repent and believe, you need to comply. You need to come and realize you can only come to God through Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the precepts that You've taught us this morning. We don't want to just be superficial in the ministries or in our lives. We don't want to just be consumed of how many people come to Jesus Christ superficially or how many people have we have the opportunity to so-called lead to Christ. The thing that we are concerned about is that they truly believe, that they have counted the cost and that they have removed the barrier and obstacle that keeps them from doing so. Jesus says, be willing to leave your father, your mother, and all things. Be willing to take up your cross and follow him and be his disciple. Lord, we want to take the gospel to those who are perishing. I pray that you would help us to be involved in real Holy Spirit evangelism. We pray that you would have us have the right perspective of evangelism. And we thank you for what you've taught us here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' most precious and glorious name. Amen.